So you that, could try and raise money, and then people could have Matcoin, and they could go and so, swap Matcoin with each other. This is so weird, dude, because this is actually a real thing that I'm trying to, oh, to, to think through. I'm not, it's dude, not when your be, pre-sale starts, yeah, I know, like, the white paper's coming out, guys. Just keep yeah, listening yeah. to the podcast. <laughs> but I mean, like, why not? Like, I could, sure. Do you know what I'm saying? It's well, the Wild West out there. Because, we now I mean, know why not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Matt Brown Show. Sure, sure. This is the Matt Brown Show. Matt Brown, Matt Brown, Matt Brown Show. The Matt, the Matt Brown, the Matt Brown Show. This is the Matt Brown Show. <laughs> Cryptocurrencies, the blockchain, Bitcoin, and the future of money. This subject is arguably one of the hottest subjects in the media right now, and for very good reason. It promises so much, the least of which is the decentralization of the monetary system as we know it, and the potential inclusion of the financially excluded. This event is the first live podcast-driven media event of its kind in South Africa, which I'm incredibly proud of. And after I released the tickets, it sold out the first time in less than 12 hours. Then after releasing the second batch of tickets, it sold out in less than four hours. And when I released the final set of tickets, it sold out, and here's the thing, without me telling anyone that I had released an additional 50 tickets. The demand for answers from the South African public was simply insatiable. So you are about to hear what went down at my first live podcast event, where I interview South Africa's experts, if there is such a thing, on the current developments within the cryptocurrency and blockchain space. Your guests are Simon Dingle from Phantom Design, a genius in his own right, but also very outspoken and hilariously funny in the process of doing so. Fazar Misani, the blockchain lead for Rand Merchant Bank, one of South Africa's largest banks, and who wrote the definitive white paper on the impact of the blockchain and cryptocurrency on the world's financial systems. And Lorin Gamaroff, the CEO of Bank Immune, who has been invited around the world to speak on digital currencies and distributed ledgers and their benefits for emerging economies. He has addressed the IMF, World Bank, the FBI, and Commonwealth Secretariat, the South African Reserve Bank, TEDx, and a host of banking professionals and attorney generals throughout the world. In this episode, we exchange such a valuable series of thoughts, perspectives, and ideas in front of a live audience. And we also include a live Q&A session with our audience. So pay particular attention to the end of the episode, which is a bit longer than usual, but I do make a big announcement of a new digital platform for the cryptocurrency community of South Africa. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hey guys, welcome to the Matt Brown Show. I have uh, the great privilege of having Simon Dingle, Laurent Gamaroff and Fazar Misani with me. 
as well as a whole live audience. So how's it, guys? <laughs> right, I've always wanted to do that. <laughs> cool. So um, we're going to talk about cryptocurrencies, blockchain, Bitcoin, and the future of money. Um, why don't we just kick it off with why this matters? Um, I'm going to leave the question open to you guys. But why does cryptocurrencies and blockchain matter to the world today? Sure, I can start. I think there are many reasons it matters, but one of the first reasons, the primary reasons this matters is that it's the first time that humanity has been able to uh, make digital resources scarce. And that's a very big thing, because in the past, anything digital, the pictures on your phone and email, etc., can be copied and pasted at zero costs to, for, infinite, for an infinite number of times. And so what uh, this technology allows is the creation of digital tokens that are inherently scarce and therefore can have value and that do not require the existence of a trusted central third party to govern that digital resource. So it's really a phenomenal thing when you think about it, and it's only been in existence, in existence since 2000 and, uh, 2009. So uh, it's still very early days, but its implications, I think, is beyond all of us uh, right now. Well, it, it matters, I think, because uh, the system we depend on, the, the ones our lives depend on, is broken. You know, uh, we're all, I think, uh, headed into a, a disaster. It started in 2008. You know, we, we hope that those PhD economists and all that who are driving this ship uh, have, have a firm grasp on what's going on, um, but clearly they don't. And uh, even if the system was sustainable, you know, it, it, there's still so many uh, parts of it that makes it so difficult for just the vast majority of people on this planet to actually conduct trade and commerce and to make payments and to remit money across borders cheaply and safely and securely. So um, I think it's it's less about this this uh, amazing technology, rather more about the the system that we have right now going down a black hole and hopefully not taking us aware people down with it. It's an interesting point. It's a little bit like in 2008 we learned that there were, we had a cancer patient in our waiting room and we just gave it a prescription of Pinados, otherwise known as quantitative easing, and now we're just waiting to see what happens, right? <laughs> um, so I totally agree with everything that Farzam and, and Lorian have said, but maybe just to add, I, I think one of the reasons it's so important to me is because it takes us back to um, an ancient form of trust. Human trust evolved as a decentralized system. Um, and in fact, money was one of the first ways we did that. It's, it's probably societally the second most important thing we invented next to language. Um, it was the beginning of this mythology, this game that we play with each other. Um, and it, it, it was decentralized. If you look at examples like, you know, your tally sticks or rye stones is another popular one. Um, all of those systems, when they first emerged, were things that society would do as a whole. A village would remember who had what store of value, whether it was in limestone or engraved sticks or in Africa, things like um, baboon bones were very common as a, as a source of money. Society did that, and we didn't need central authorities to do it. The problem is that those systems didn't scale. Um, and they, of course, like all things human beings do, were fallible. And cryptography and the invention of triple entry accounting using cryptography, which dates back to 1989, that gave us a way of going back to this ancient form of trust where we can do this as a society, we can do this as a people, and we don't need central authorities to vest our trust in. That was a very short-lived idea 
Um, that's a very recent idea, uh, you know, in terms of, of, of human beings as a species. We're now back to the ancient form of trust. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. So where are we today? I mean, I think we've kind of tabled how we've gotten to this point. But as a consumer-driven market backed by historically, you know, financial systems that have been centralized for as long as we can remember, where are we actually today? Because there's a lot of people in this room that have probably heard about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. I mean, I was listening to 94.7 yesterday and this guy was talking about Bitcoin. It just seems that there's this wave of awareness that's suddenly come to the fore. And people are saying, what does this actually mean for me? So where are we actually in the realities of you know, cryptocurrencies and blockchain? I mean, we'll get into how corporates is dealing with this. Um, a bit later, but from a consumer's perspective, where are we exactly? I don't think we're anywhere yet. Um, you know, the the internet, depending on when you, you choose to start counting, has been around for the better part of three decades. It feels like we're only really now starting to figure out what it's good for. Um, and if you look at the progress of any technology and how we how we adopt and, and embrace technology, the, the first curiosity is that human beings discover things before they know what to do with them. We discovered fire, and all we knew how to do with it was burn ourselves. Um, and then we figured out it had uses. We literally discovered electricity by somebody being shocked and almost dying. We had no idea what to do with it. And when we first started rooting it into houses, we thought that all we could do with it was switch on lights. You know, 100 years later, think of everything that we do with electricity. Those weren't even in our wildest dreams. The internet is nowhere near us discovering what it's good for. And the blockchain is 30 years behind that. So we really are at, at, at the very nascent stages of something that nobody has figured out yet. I don't know if you guys agree. I totally agree. I, th- I think it's also important to look at this in the larger context of humanity's evolution. I think we have a tendency as humans to kind of focus on a particular time period that we're in, focus on a, focus on a particular topic, uh, assume everything else is going to stay constant, and then twiddle with a few uh, variables and see what, what changes in that particular system. That's not how life works. That's not, that's not how the world works. And so if you look at our current system right now, which is based on the nation-state system, and we see that we've only had the nation-state for about 400 years, and you look at the cryptocurrencies that pay no attention and, and, and no heed to, to actually what a border is, they don't care who you are, they don't care where you live, what color your skin is, how much money you have in your pocket or not, if you have it, 
that is calling into question a lot of our societal paradigms. So that's going to start changing the nation state. What is governance? You know, how do you actually regulate this stuff? So I think we're on, you know, I completely agree with what Simon said. We, we are at such an early stage. People like ourselves may think we're experts. We actually have no idea what's actually coming in the future. We can only guess. But what I can say is that it's not just the financial system that will change because of this. It is much, much larger than that. I do think we're going to look back at this period on history um, with a little bit of condescension, though. A little bit like now we look back at the Victorian times and then pooping in buckets and throwing it out the window, and we're like, <laughs> they couldn't figure out toilets. We'll look back at this period of history and how we do money right now, similarly, 100 years from now. <laughs> Quantitative sure. easing, the way that, that fractional reserve banking works, that's, that's, that's our generation's pooing in a bucket and throwing it out the toilet. How many of you love that analogy? Hands up. (laughs) Yes, and uh, you know, also um, those responses from you guys is is why you are my two favorite crypto kids in the whole world, apart from Amanda B. Johnson. I don't know if you know anything about that. I move on to Laurie's lap now. (laughs) Yes, you can. (laughs) No, no, but but uh, so now that you've said that, and uh, exactly, we we don't have an, you know, we at the beginning, but we do have an inkling because we've already seen how we can have a financial system without having any any central authority to govern that system and to restrain us and to control us. So what we can see is we can envision a world now where imagine the state itself is structured differently because the state depends on being able to control the financial system. So they can they can garnish their little cut out of the whole thing and then build up their armies and their police forces and all their regulations and restraints. So yes, we don't know exactly what the future is going to look like, but we have now this little inkling that it's certainly going to be quite different and it's, and it's imminent. You know, I think in the next, again, like you said, the, the, the amount of time that's just gone by from 20, when was it, 2001? Um, you know, in the next 20 years, in even the next 10 years, I think things are going to be so vastly different in terms of how we earn income and how we spend that income and how we actually transact with each other. So it's unknown, but that at least we've got a good idea. So I'm always fascinated about how the man in the street adopts new things. And I'm not talking about driving a new car. I'm talking about things that fundamentally change behavior of an individual or a whole community or a whole country or a whole world. So... I always like to subscribe to the philosophy about trust and underlying anything. Like, you guys wouldn't be if, you know, there wasn't some form of mutual trust. I don't know how you guys feel about coming here. But, <laughs> but my point being is that trust is generally the basis of any transaction. So going back to the tally stick example, if I wanted to buy a pig from Simon and he didn't trust me to pay him back, then he just wouldn't give me that um, sort of result. So when you look at the... The, the opportunity or the propensity of cryptocurrencies to scale very quickly. I mean, there's like 900, how many cryptocurrencies are there now? 900? Over a thousand. Over a thousand cryptocurrencies. And yet we've, we find that we're only talking about Bitcoin, Ethereum, and maybe Ripple, and maybe a few others like EOS or whatever. My point being is that what is going to be the event that drives the adoption of cryptocurrency in other words, what is the event that's coming that's going to fundamentally shift, or for, let, me, let me rephrase, question our faith in the banking institutions entirely? What is that event? The coming collapse, the financial collapse, hyperinflationary implosion on a global scale. Lauren could talk about that all day, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it could be something like that, uh, but I think it could be a little bit more subtle than that 
where you see things like Venezuela right now and they're having hyperinflation. And yes, they're a country and we hear about them in the news, uh, but you can be sure that that's affecting their lives obviously much, much more than ours when we hear about it. Um, and I, So I think it's when things become personal to you, when you start living in an environment that's whose fundamentals start becoming questioned that things like that can happen. Uh, so I think it, it will come via, you know, innovation and people just wanting to try to try new things through creativity. It will come through, uh, through some type of disruption and crisis. Um, and again, I think when you see, you know, how a child grows, uh, you don't see their change day to day. But after 20 years, you can't recognize the difference between that same person. So I think we, we will see probably in, you know, a little bit of both where you have immediate changes in certain areas, but you'll, you, we're already seeing that gradual change that's happening in the world. I think we saw a microcosm of what could happen in, in Cyprus um, a couple of years ago where, you know, government came in and started scraping um, from people's personal savings. And there was literally no safe haven for money in Cyprus outside of cryptocurrency, and we saw a resulting flight to it. So I think Lorian's right. If, if there's a seismic economic event that would be a tipping point for people fleeing to cryptocurrency, what is the likelihood of that happening on a broad scale internationally? A year ago, I would have said nothing. Now that we have a certified circus clown in the most powerful position in the solar system, you know, who knows when you've got the most useless president in American history running the world. Maybe, maybe something like that could happen sooner rather than later. Um, but, but, but I think, I think the, the truth is that it's going to happen slowly. And, and this is something we understand very well. When you go to business school, they teach you about the dissipation of innovation curve. You know, that's what business school is. We take statements of the obvious and we turn them into graphs and then we teach them as a science. Um, but what they don't do at business school is show you the cognitive dissonance curve, right? Because people don't like change and heuristically we resist it. Um, of course, business schools are founded on cognitive dissonance, so you know it would require a little bit of stepping outside of the bottle to read the label if they were going to teach you about it. But but people don't like change, and and Farzam is right. You need to have something personally impact you and force you into a new paradigm. Look at smartphones and how long it took people to understand first the cell phone and then running applications on a pocket computer and then why they need that for themselves. That was a very fast process, but it took the better part of a decade. I think it's going to take longer for, for blockchain because the stakes are higher. You're talking about me taking my entire savings, my entire net worth, and putting it into a system where I'm wholly in control of it. And people don't rate themselves that highly yet. Fazam, you wanted to jump in? I wanted to say that also, you know, we need to realize where we are. To what Lauren was saying a little bit earlier, uh, we were talking about the gold standard. So we actually made a, a complete severance of the gold, gold standard with President Nixon in 1971. And so effectively... 46 years later now, we are in a real financial experiment because there is nothing that backs the US dollar. There is nothing that backs Iran. There is nothing that backs the pound, right? And we, we call these things fancy names like quantitative easing, which very, very few people actually understand. But what that means is that you're diluting money, right? And dilution, as we, we all know, after you do that too much, it dilutes something beyond recognition, uh, and there you don't have any currency uh, at all. And this is not the first time that humanity has tried out fiat currency. We've had it for about 1,500 years. And every single time we've had fiat currency, 
it has at some point or another failed us. Well, so in the last hundred years, there's been 57 cases. Venezuela and the last two. There you go. So I think right now we, we really need to pay attention to where we are, look at central banks' balance sheets. Listen, I, I don't think there's anything malicious uh, from central bankers. I really don't. I think they're doing the best Would that they can. Would you work for again, Faza? What's that? <laughs> <laughs> so Very I, diplomatic. So, so I, I think they're doing their best and they're trying, but we're living in a paradigm where things are changing and um, things will change very fast, I think, in the future. Uh, Lorraine, can you just maybe expand a little bit more on what you meant by 56 times? Well, in the last 100 years, there's been 57 cases of hyperinflation. So we can see Venezuela now, and we saw Zim in 2008. But that was just the last two, and, you know, 57 times in the last 100 years. I mean, surely that gives you an indication that it's, it's not a system that is up to the task. Uh, you know, a lot of people think, no, no, but, you know, nowadays in these advanced economies, we need to have the ability to deflate and inflate the currency depending on GDP and all those sorts of things. Uh, and and uh, if we had a gold standard, which was this deflationary currency, you know, things wouldn't work as well. We wouldn't have employment, full employment and all those things. But actually, if you look back in history, the most stable economic times, and Fazam, you can, you can let me know if I'm right, haven't those always been where there's been a sound money system, a gold system? Yeah, I think there has been. There have also been challenges. So the Great Depression, one of the reasons for that was uh, you know, the, the constriction of money supply. And there are a lot of economists that say if we didn't have that, we would be in a better position, etc. Yes, but that's because the central bank took a third of the currency out of circulation. It's true. So there, there are things that have happened that central bankers have done. Uh, I, I think that we can look back on and say that there were mistakes being made. But I think my point is that what we have now, cryptocurrencies right now, are also not the solution. Like right now, just as, as a stat, we, we talked about Venezuela having issues, right? If we stopped everybody in the world from using Bitcoin and we only allowed the Venezuelans to use Bitcoin themselves right now as it stands, each Venezuelan would only be able to submit one financial transaction once every two months. Okay? So that's clearly not good enough for even Venezuela, let alone the whole world. So my point is that right now we're onto something amazing, right? But we also need to have the humility to understand that we don't have all the answers and that we need to work together to figure out what the future will look like. So uh, um, I was at, I think it was when we went to that launch of, there was basically a launch uh, of a physical premise in Sainton in the banking quarter where you can now walk in there and literally trade cryptocurrencies. It's pretty cool. Anyway, so we were there and uh, um, Lorraine was asked to be a panelist. I wasn't, <laughs> nudge, nudge. <laughs> but uh, my point being, uh, what one of the points that came through was Bitcoin. And when you look at gold as a standard, in other words, something that's backed by something material and actually worth something of value, that Bitcoin today, and this is what we need to discuss, but is Bitcoin as a cryptocurrency the gold standard within the cryptocurrency ecosystem? I think it has the potential to be. Um, it, it's not yet. I mean, it, it's interesting when you talk about the gold standard, and as Fazan was saying earlier, you know, it, it would help if we call things by their names. You know, the gold standard tells you what it does. We moved off of that to the bullshit standard, right? <laughs> We've got systems like fractional reserve banking, which actually means banks can lend you money they don't want system. If we actually called it that, they'd probably money that they don't have system. If we called it that, there'd probably be riots in the street, right? Because <laughs> that's what that's that's in effect what it is. Um, but but we're seeing this this emerging kind of cryptocurrency. Um, 
uh, ecosystem where something like Bitcoin might emerge as the store of value chain. Bitcoin, as it currently stands, is terrible for daily transactions. Um, and Farzan pointed out some of the economic weaknesses in the system. That's something that could be addressed, but we already have other cryptocurrencies like Dash and Ethereum that are better for um, on-the-fly transactions than Bitcoin is. So Bitcoin may well become the like the gold standard. It might become the store of value chain. Ethereum might become the smart contract chain. Monero might become the daily transaction chain. And all of these things can coexist quite peacefully. I mean, it does kind of suggest this this system where all of the the altcoins, as we currently call them, are kind of side chains to Bitcoin. Everything kind of comes back to Bitcoin at some point, um, and that's that's where we peg our, our value. But but you know, you also you also said something interesting in in, that, in gold having some intrinsic value. Gold's just a shiny rock that's okay at con- at conducting electricity. You know, it's monkeys on this planet hurling around the sun decided that it was very valuable. It's not even that scarce in the universe, right? It's pretty scarce on our planet, but it's just a shiny rock. It has limited utility. Um, you could make a case that Bitcoin has more utility than gold. And by the way, Bitcoin also consists of electrons sitting somewhere. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting when you unpack it philosophically how we perceive something like gold because it's shiny and we can see it as having value and something like Bitcoin that's more ethereal and existing on, on smaller particles as, as being somehow different. Yeah, when you think about value, it really is a psychological and a social concept. Something has value because some, like as a community we believe it has value. Can I disagree but, with you? Try. <laughs> you know, with, with these sorts of uh, things about, you know, the, the kind of esoteric nature of money and it's, be- it's only because uh, we think it has value that it has value, that's not actually true. You know, something has value if it has three properties. If it's useful, if it's rare, think about it, some ancient teapot, and funny enough, if there's celebrity attached. So those are the three things that make something valuable. And gold isn't valuable because it's shiny and all that sort of stuff. It's useful. It's useful as money. You know, it is this very... Uh, uh, so are seashells. N- yes, but, the, so but gold bones. is... Yes, and those were valuable as money at some point in history until we found a better version of that. And, I, but, and so but, is your daughter's painting, by the way, very valuable to you. Well, that's celebrity. Not so much to me. That's yeah. celebrity. <laughs> so so gold, gold actually has very specific properties that makes it very useful as money. It's very durable. It's very it's divisible. It's portable. All those Absolutely. things. So, so it's not because, oh, we all think it's valuable because it's shiny. That, 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 that doesn't make sense. No, I, it I makes agree. sense to me. I agree with Fazom, actually. It's, it's the mythology, right? It's a game we play. Um, so I, I think, Lauren, your, your point is well taken that there are certain characteristics that it needs to have, right? Um, so gold doesn't rust. Gold is rare, right? But um, so, is, so silver is also something that's uh, scarce, right? But we, like, why is gold worth 1,260 US dollars right now? Because it's more useful as a store of value and as money no, than because silver. because that's the consensus on what the price is, a, a market of willing buyers and sellers. Yeah. I, I think it's the market. Is the, so that, that particular value comes about because as a community, the buyers and the sellers who come and bring their own subjective beliefs about a particular thing and are willing to sacrifice something else for it because value is all about sacrifice. You cannot... Like if, if if I said what is the the value of this bottle uh, of water, and I asked you to actually say what the value is, there is only one way to express that, which is by referencing something else. No, but you look at it and say, how useful is this to me? Monetarily, how rare is this, and how is it famous? Those are the things. Not 
not uh, anything else. And so it's actually much simpler than you think. That bottle of water is, is valuable because it, in, in this case, it has it's use. famous. Yes, and you touched it now. So now I'll, I'll drink my famous water. I'll, 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 we'll leave it there. Anyway, so now Bitcoin. Okay, I'm gonna, I want to talk. About, I want to address your point about all these alternatives and all that sort of thing. Now, I'm, I'm very publicly a Bitcoin maximalist. And, and, uh, and the only reason... Uh, well, uh, I guess Sorry, we a, should maybe just explain what that means. Okay, so I do believe that Bitcoin is going to be the one coin to rule them all, and one day we will all transact with Bitcoin. Okay, sure, there will be these alternative currencies serving little niche uses, maybe communities and all that sort of thing. But as a, as a gold standard, because you said, is, there, is it a gold standard? Gold standard, yeah. I do think Bitcoin specifically is going to be the digital gold standard and all everything else is going to leverage off or hinge on this for some reason and I, and, and and i think the, the most uh, uh, the most important reason to me is because when you're evaluating something something new and strange well the, the best you can do is go and look to see analogies in the world or maybe historically there were similar things how did those things pan out so uh, the closest analogy i have to bitcoin as a technology is kind of like the internet you know where of course back in the day there were competing protocols and there were different you know intranet type things like AOL and CompuServe and Prodigy and all that kind of stuff. But what was the most useful was a single technology, a single internet that where we could all just move information around and that was by far the most useful. And, and yes, Bitcoin is not perfect. That is for sure. And uh, we can't transact, uh, you know, like buy a cup of coffee. For, you know, that's the famous thing. Can you buy a cup of coffee? But that's just because it's now the 90s and we're on these 14K modems and the internet's crap. But uh, uh, technologies develop and evolve. And ultimately, what will be most useful is I, if I can send a Bitcoin to somebody in China to buy some kind of good, not to now go and have that little bit of friction where I have to now go and exchange out of Bitcoin into another currency. The thing about innovation and about human beings is that we spend all our time as innovators removing friction, no matter how small. That's what innovation is all about. And uh, uh, exchanging in and out of currencies is, is, is friction. Now, you know what's uh, funny? If you go look, uh, uh, there's this amazing article that comes from The Economist 1988. It's actually on the front cover of the magazine. Have you ever seen this article? Um, look, check this out. If you've got a Google on your phone or something, it's The Economist 1988. And on the cover is this phoenix. You know that, that bird famously rising out of the ashes? So on the cover, there's the phoenix and there's this fire and there are uh, these uh, fiat notes like dollars and pounds and all those sorts of things. And on the, on, on the phoenix, there's this gold medallion and it says 2018. And the title of the, the article is uh, um, something about look forward to a, a world currency uh, in, tw in 2018, so 30 years from 1988. And it talks about how currencies, you know, uh, inevitably there should only be one because having all this issue with exchange and uh, all that kind of stuff adds these unnecessary frictions and costs and all that sort of thing. So to me, uh, they're envisioning some sort of IMF perhaps currency like ISDR, which I think is actually going to be the solution when the dollar eventually caves eventually. Um, but now we have this, this new uh, system, this Bitcoin decentralized system. So that is why I'm, uh, uh, apart from other things, the technology is robust and all that sort of thing. Well, I think Bitcoin, yes, is going to be the digital gold standard. But, but that's decades out, right? In the in-between, there certainly decades. is scope for all of these other altcoins that are currently fulfilling on things that Bitcoin just simply cannot do. Yes, as an interim thing, perhaps, uh, but also mostly for speculation, because most of these currencies are just Bitcoin derivatives. Mm. And, but I think this is an interesting place, maybe, to get Farzam's opinion mm -hmm. on sovereign blockchains. Because what's interesting is when some of the altcoins are being issued by governments themselves. And we're starting to see this, right? In Tunisia, in Senegal, there's potential for it to happen in Venezuela. 
South Africa's so, tabling a similar proposition. So a couple of comments on what Lorian said first, and then I'll get to that, which is, um, you know, if you look at the euro, which is one currency for a region uh, uh, of multiple countries, we're already starting to see cracks in that system. And one of the reasons for that is that while you have monetary union, you don't have fiscal union and you don't have political union, i.e., you know, the lives of, of citizens of different countries are not exactly equal, right, if you want to actually be blunt about it. So I think what's necessary if we ever want to get to a world with a single currency is that you actually need to get to a world that views humanity as one, right? Otherwise, you're going to have problems like we've had and we've seen in, in, with the Greek crisis, etc. that, by the way, is not behind us by any stretch of the imagination. So, again, uh, you, you know, looking at a, a single monetary system requires uh, going beyond the financial system to look at our political systems, our social systems, etc. So given the fact that we're right now at this nation-state level, um, you know, a sovereign blockchain, when you think about or and let me explain what that is. Um, there, there is a lot of people kind of looking at what this technology can do in a regulated government environment rather than an unregulated kind of global environment that we've seen uh, blockchains uh, emerge in uh, so far. Um, and there are many reasons that could be helpful. Uh, you, you know, right now we spend a lot of time between financial institutions doing reconciliations between different ledgers and different uh, systems, etc. That's expensive and that gets passed on to customers uh, and it's not very efficient, it's sometimes very slow as well. So one, one of the beautiful things about a blockchain is that it's a single ledger that's distributed, it's a shared ledger. So if it can work on a global basis, uh, why not look at it on a national basis for a national currency. Now, it may not be able to compete in the long run with a global currency, but we need to take small steps, small steps as, as we kind of evolve. So uh, right now, a lot of countries around the world are, are investigating sovereign blockchains to effectively bring a new form of their own currencies to the population. So we already have two forms of money, which is physical cash in your pocket, and the digital money in your bank account, completely different things from a form perspective. One is a piece of paper and one you can't see, but a hundred rands, you can settle it either physically or digitally. It doesn't make a difference. Yes, but the physical note has something that the digital thing doesn't, it's and that's famous. privacy and freedom. It's famous. You're right. It absolutely it's got does. got on it. It absolutely does, and it's a, bare, it's a bare instrument. It doesn't have credit risk of banks, etc., so what a cryptocurrency would bring would be a third form of money, which would have many of those benefits of physical cash, but it would make it much more portable like digital cash is. All right? So there's a lot of things that are, that are very beautiful about this technology that can be harnessed across a whole spectrum of, of, of different uses. And frightening. I mean, uh, to me, a, a sovereign blockchain, you know, and especially not even a sovereign blockchain, just, you know, where uh, uh, every transaction is recorded on a bank ledger and every transaction uh, somebody can take a fee out of, uh, you know, if it's possible for them to now just, you know, remember when WikiLeaks uh, was blocked by PayPal or something? Remember, uh, you know, as soon as you are beholden to a system that is being controlled by somebody, you, you, you're hoping that, that, that they are benevolent and they are just looking out for your best interests, but we, we can't trust that. Yeah, but we're not, I don't think anybody's arguing for the validity of it. I think we're saying it's going to happen, <laughs> whether we like yeah. it or not. Yes, and that's why we should be thankful that now we have this ability to have a private Absolutely. transaction system. So, that, I, I want to bring in one more thing, because this is actually a fundamental aspect that we sometimes lose sight of. 
again, if we think about our current system of humanity, we benefit a lot because of trust. Right? We trust each other right here. We trust each other in the room. I, I trust right now that I'm going to leave this place alive. There's a chance that I won't. There's a chance that I won't. But if I didn't trust you guys, I would probably come in here armed. Right? And I also trust that if you do something to me, that probably you'll be, bring, you'll be brought to account. Okay? Now, the problem is, is that these systems of governance, these systems of trust, are starting to betray our trust. Right, as society. So governments around the world, uh, uh, corruption as we see it uh, all around the world, is starting to call into question that trust. And people now are rebelling against those authorities that have been, uh, have, were meant to help us. Mm. And so we start saying, I don't want anything to do with that. I want to go to something completely trustless. But I can tell you that if we start heading that direction and we don't recognize that institutions of governance have served society well. We've come to where we are in humanity after millennia of, of existence because it works better than, have, than, than, than not having a police force, a government, etc., where everybody is a law unto themselves. So I think that's an important thing to, to bring about, and, and especially in the crypto community. I think sometimes we get carried away a bit too much with thinking that we're going to get rid of trusted institutions, going to get rid of governance, to me, that's just simply not the case. But there's also a point to be made about enforceability, right? Because we had ports authorities that could stop or limit the flow of any particular good into, Absolutely. A, into a sovereign state, etc. Whereas now, I mean, look at content piracy. You guys might not remember this, but in the early days of the internet, people used to download music and TV shows that they hadn't paid for. It was disgusting. And then luckily the governments and the regulators found out and they made it illegal and then everybody just stopped doing it. Thank They're you. like, cool, fair enough. <laughs> and the government says we're not allowed to, so I'm not going to watch Game of Thrones anymore. <laughs> it's like, it's the same thing. A government could come out tomorrow and make Bitcoin outright Absolutely. illegal, as some have. Only one or two, thankfully. Yeah. So what? Blockchain don't care. The rest of the show is coming up shortly, but I have a big announcement to make. Off the back of the highly successful Joburg event, which you are listening to right now, the Matt Brown Show, Digital Kung Fu, and Matt Brown Media, in conjunction with Nedbank, will be hosting the Cape Town leg of the cryptocurrencies, blockchain, Bitcoin, and the future of money event. It will be held on Thursday, the 24th of August, at the auditorium, the Nedbank Clock Tower, in the Clock Tower precinct in the waterfront in Cape Town, and will run from 5 p.m. until 7.30 p.m. This event will sell out quickly, so book your tickets right now at qkt.io forward slash crypto. That's qkt.io forward slash crypto to book your tickets. Now, this is an event not to be missed, and unfortunately, many people missed out on the Johannesburg leg of the event, so please don't wait. The good news is that I'm doubling the size of the event, so I'm expecting upwards of 300 people, which will include a mix of blue chip clients, entrepreneurs, and of course, the public and the media. There will also be a cash bar and food available, and the event will include a bit of a networking session. So I will see you there on Thursday, the 24th of August in Cape Town. So, so, so just on yeah. that, so I was having lunch with a couple guys uh, earlier today who are also actively involved in cryptocurrency and doing their own ICOs, which I want to talk to you guys about later. But my point being is that um, they were telling me about the US Treasury has now 
defined or labeled a crypt or cryptocurrencies period as a security. That's cute. Did you hear about that? Yes. Yeah, well, the there SEC. was the SEC ruling today, yeah. yeah. So, two days ago, so they came out with an 18-page paper. Uh, but go ahead, I think you had yeah. a question. Yeah, well, you're, the, you're more placed to comment on <laughs> what that actually implies and what are its implications for the cryptocurrency community in general. You know, the world has a lot of vested interests, right, in all domains. And whenever those vested interests become threatened, they typically try to stop change, right? But I think what we've seen time and time again, it's futile to stop forces that serve people better. This technology serves people better, right? So governments can, and they probably will, uh, kind of try to put the brakes onto these, this new innovation. Hopefully they don't screw it up too much because it is going to happen one way or another. So hopefully we facilitate it and we don't just dampen it. But ultimately, there is no question that, 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 that we're on the threshold of a completely new paradigm. But what are its implications now? Because clearly, I totally agree with you and think everybody in this room agrees with you. But fundamentally, you've got institutions that have been centralized with vested interests now trying to control something that effectively threatens their existence. So it, it's probably important just to define two things because you mentioned ICOs. <laughs> and, and, and just for the benefit of everybody who doesn't know what an ICO is, that's an initial coin offering. It's basically where you take the equity of a company, as one example, you make it available as a, as a cryptocurrency token, generally written as a smart contract on top of Ethereum, and you basically go and you sell your equity in the public space, and you, you crowdfund companies without having to work via a stock exchange, for example. Um, so it's a little bit of a hybridization of like an IPO and crowdfunding. And let me just add something to that, yeah. because, because I think traditionally we have only been able to really raise funds either through issuing debt or through issuing equity. And that's an important point, yeah, yeah. But now, actually, some of these things are not equity or debt at all. They're just yeah. saying, listen, guys, I've got a token that may have some utility on a network. Mm. Would you like to buy some? And if you buy some, go for it. I have no obligation towards yeah. you whatsoever. Yeah. So this is, this is phenomenal. So, so for example, you could start Metcoin. And you could go, I need money to start um, running my podcast company full-time. Guys, you can buy a Matcoin for two rand fifty each, and there are a million available because I said so. And then you could so, so you if, could try and raise money, and then people could have Matcoin, and they could go and so, swap Matcoin with each other. This is so weird, dude, because this is actually a real thing that I'm trying to, oh, to, cons- to think through. I'm not, it's dude, not when your be, pre-sale starts, yeah, I know, like, the white paper's coming out, guys. Just keep yeah, listening yeah. to the podcast. <laughs> but I mean, like, fuck it. Why not? Like I could, sure. do you know what I'm saying? It's well, the wild west out there. Because, we now I mean, know why not. <laughs> <laughs> and and but, so, but there's another important definition we just have to clear, which is the idea of a digital, uh, of, of a decentralized autonomous organization, right? So the idea that a company doesn't have to have a board, doesn't have to have operations people, that a company can be more or like an idea um, that can run via a smart contract a very primitive form of artificial intelligence, if you will. Um, It can make its equity available, and people who buy those tokens can then vote on what the company does. And the first big experiment in this was called the DAO, the the DAO. 
Um, unfortunately, there was a, a problem with the smart contract. So the Dow first made news for being the biggest crowdfunding event in history where it raised $150 million in what was it, like a month. And then the second time it was in the news was when a hacker managed to make off with half of that money, $75 million, which led to the forking of Ethereum, etc. But the idea hasn't gone away. And a lot of these ICOs are for Dow-like companies. Now, what the SEC did was they said, well, let's look to the original ICO. Let's look to the Dow. And let's set precedent there. Let's use that as a case study. And they decided that these tokens that were generated when the Dow contract went live do qualify as a security. They said this looks a lot like a company selling its public its shares publicly. So we think that's a security. Funnily enough, the SEC also decided that Ethereum isn't a security, even though when Ethereum first went live, it was distributed via a crowd sale as well. But they see the utility in Ethereum. And so this is where things get interesting. What the SEC didn't say is, is, is as important as what they did say. Because what they were implying is, if you create a token for the sole purpose of publicly soliciting money, that's a security and you guys need to talk to us and do the registrations as if you're doing an IPO, etc. The implication is, if there is utility, if you can make a case that this token can be used for something else, like civics tokens that are used for identity verification or the basic attention token that's used to enumerate content creators on the internet, well, we don't see that as a security and then we're okay with this weird hybrid model. So I think to Fazem's point earlier, Earlier, when, when the regulators are sanely thinking about this and making sure that they're speaking to the right people and, inf and, and being informed about the technology that they're regulating, they can make some really good contributions to the discussion. Yeah. And I believe the SEC did, even though the SEC ultimately is a pointless organization. Yes, I agree. Now, in spite of everything I've just said, I'm not an anarchist. And I, I have a Bitcoin business, and I actually welcome regulation. You know, regulation creates a, a, a playing field that is uh, protected uh, and all those sorts of things. So when I talk about Bitcoin, uh, as outside of the system. I'm not saying we're all going to be living in this wild west. I think that, they, that the SEC type regulations, but also reserve bank regulations for as long as they're around, are actually a, a useful thing because as a business, I'm providing a service to my customers. They're going to be uh, transacting through my system and, and uh, engaging in it. And uh, they want to be confident that I am, you know, uh, legit. I'm, all, I'm being audited and I have uh, all those sorts of, I'm complying. I've got KYC and AML. And you're so, not working with those dodgy mat coins. Yes. No, well, actually, I want, I want We're to pick not some yet, of those up. Not yet, dude. Marketing hasn't happened. So SEC regulations, uh, uh, reserve central bank regulations, you know, when they're regulating Bitcoin exchanges, all those regulations are ap actually necessary and important to provide confidence and, you know, a, a stable environment, not just this crazy Wild West. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we're lucky that we have the precedent of the Internet, you know, it's something that's decentralized. It doesn't, it's not exactly the same as a blockchain. It deals with the transfer of information and blockchain deals with a transfer of value and other things. But I think when the internet came about, you know, there were banks that came out with statements saying it is irresponsible to expose our clients' data to this thing called the internet. And now if you said that, then you'd be out of business, right? So uh, People at that time also try to regulate the internet. They try to say, well, what's our paradigm? We don't know what this is. The closest thing that we think it is is a telecoms company. Let's try to use telecoms regulations to regulate the internet. Clearly, the internet is not a telecoms company. And we need to start changing our paradigm and realizing that there's something new. And we need to change our paradigm to be updated for this new world. 
the same thing is happening right now in the blockchain space. That's such an important point. And you, you can see it with cloud computing, for example. The banks still have this idea that they must control their own infrastructure. Right. Because Fricky, the CTO, will do a better job than Google of security. Right? We can't put it in the cloud with Amazon or Google. What do those guys know about security? Right? Yes, yes, and now right. they're starting to learn that actually, once you get Fricky and all of the tin underground at um, one Fredman drive out of the way, Actually, you could do this in the cloud, and not only would you save money, actually Google are better than Fricky at security. Who would have thought, right? And so I think we're going to see the same thing with blockchains. The banks are going to do some decidedly stupid things like R3 and Ripple, right? And they're going to bet the bank, quite literally, on private blockchains, and then eventually they'll realize that this public infrastructure is cheaper, safer because of the distribution that it has, and a better way of doing it. But it, it, we're going to have some very icky decades between now and then. But you're also seeing the banks themselves, I think, you know, a few years ago, if you talked about cryptocurrencies at a bank, uh, there's absolutely, no, don't even talk about that. That's just drugs. That's, you know, illicit activity. And now when you listen to the discourse that's happening on the global stage from banks themselves, that's changing. That's changing very, very quickly. So I think banks right now deal with anything of value, right? They buy and sell gold, wheat, pork bellies, you name it. So if we actually look at what cryptocurrencies are, they're something and they have a value to them and you can buy them, sell them and trade them. Kind of sounds like a thing that a bank would do. But because it's so new, I think a lot of banks are trying to get their heads around it. I think give it a few years and I don't think there's going to be a single bank that doesn't trade in this stuff. Well, it brings us back to regulation as well because as with cloud computing, they'll tell you it's got nothing to do with Fricky and the technology. It's got to do with the fact that their data has to reside in South Africa. It can't be in Ireland, right? And the regulators will ultimately decide how banks enter the blockchain space as well because there will be certain criteria that they have to meet, which so, Lorian thinks is a good thing. Just on that, so I was reading... Obviously, just randomly browsing the, the media. So, weren't you behind Spring Block? Yeah, so that's, that's the kind of uh, nickname for the South African Financial Blockchain Consortium. So, so, okay, so why does it exist and how does it matter? Sure. So, what it is, is a group of currently about 24 financial institutions in South Africa that have come together to recognize that this technology is actually a very powerful technology. And can it be harnessed to serve the financial services industry and its clients in a way that better serves those clients than what we currently have, the technology we currently have? So it has a threefold kind of purpose or mission. Number one is just to understand. You know, this is a really new technology. Uh, everybody is at different levels of their understanding of it. I think it's very unhelpful to, to try to show off about your knowledge and not people, bring people along with you. So we're trying to take, uh, have a posture of humility, try to, try to understand ourselves. Number two, try to educate others, you know, within the consortium and those institutions and beyond those institutions as well. And then number three is to, to try to demonstrate the benefits of that technology. Um, we're starting off very, very slow. And I think what you will see uh, in this space there is a lot of marketing hype. As soon as someone has any little idea that they can stick blockchain into a sentence and then talk, uh, talk to a journalist who has no idea what blockchain is but knows something and they can have a story that puts, they can put into the newspaper, then they do so. And so that actually does a disservice as well because then people get kind of immunized to this because they're like, oh, this blockchain is, 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 is taking off. And then you ask yourself, well, actually, what product, productionized systems outside of these cryptocurrencies are actually using blockchain? Mm. Uh, and you realize not many. Zero. Yeah. 
you know, so it's kind of like, you know, and then the, the biggest thing that gets me is actually when a company comes out and they say, we are using blockchain to do X, Y, and Z. And, and that's like saying an individual coming and saying, I'm using email to communicate when no one else in the world has an email address. It's, it's pretty pointless, right? So this requires collaboration. So within this blockchain consortium, we're trying to understand the technology. Uh, it has a lot of implications for our payment systems, for our security systems, for all types of financial assets. So we're taking it a step at a time and not trying to make the big headlines, but really trying to understand the substance of this technology and hopefully bring the benefits of this technology to the population at large. Do you have a, like a, a regulatory mandate, like trying to create some kind of framework or something? That... It's just too early right now. You know that there are a couple of regulators that are participating as observers. So we've got the central bank, uh, the SARB that's involved. We've got the FSB, the Financial Services Board. Um, we have uh, SARS that has also expressed uh, some interest or, uh, to, to, to see if it could be involved. But really the regulators themselves, and this is also one of the big uh, objectives of the consortium, is to help the reg regulators as well as the institutions educate themselves. So uh, there is no regulatory mandate or anything like that right now. It's too early. Um, but hopefully we'll be moving in a direction in which we don't make decisions as a country that actually acts as a disservice to us. So... Just a random thought. I mean, I've had numerous conversations on my podcast about the banking industry and whether they can actually work with disruptive technologies like the blockchain and cryptocurrencies simply because of things like organizational inertia or arthritic inertia and simply by the fact that they have shareholders. And if an entire company is motivated by the bottom line, then the, their ability to adopt is just you know, 50x times slower than, say, a smaller financial ins services institution. So just an opinion from you guys. Do you think that the financial services industry in South Africa and even more broadly around the world will ever get to a point where they are leaders, again, in terms of the equity around trust in the, in the, in the, or the underlying trust in financial transactions on the blockchain? I, 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 Fazam literally wrote the paper on this. So <laughs> definitely the best person to answer the question. So, so uh, repeat your question specifically, sorry. So, so what, do you think that the finance, your institution, yeah. RMB, FMB, Standard Bank, Netbank, Are they agile enough, etc.? So, so legacy institutions. Legacy, uh, legacy institutions, yeah. So a couple of comments on this. Uh, I think if you, if you look back and there's some statistics about when you look back at the S&P 500, uh, you know, the some of the largest companies in the U.S. 30 years ago, the average life expectancy was about 67 years. If you looked at their average life expectancy, or, or actually how long that had been in existence, if you look at it a couple of years ago, it was about 15 years. Uh, and I think there is this law of immutable, or immutable law of change. Things change. It's, and as you grow older as human beings, as you grow older as institutions, it is more difficult to be agile. So... I think a lot of people have written off financial institutions in this space. I think there are certainly financial institutions that are not going to do well, but I think there are certain financial institutions that will do extremely well if they have the right mindset uh, in, in, in this space. But it's important to also realize that another paradigm that we're in is this capitalistic paradigm, right? 
And if you look at our capitalistic paradigm, it's done a wonderful things for the world where we haven't seen the, the benefits that we've seen over the past century or so ever in history, right? But it's not a perfect system. So the distribu distribution of that wealth creation is far from uh, stable, let's say, right now, right? So one thing I want to talk about uh, is something called a fat protocol. Uh, um, and, and, and I bring this up because it starts questioning some of our fundamentals. And uh, if we think about the current um, internet companies that we have in the world right now, we have, they, they all work on these protocols that are free, TCP IP, SMTP, HTTP. We've all heard about these acronyms. Nobody pays to use these things. But then a company like a Facebook or a Google will come and build their enterprise on top of these thin protocols, and they'll garner all this value, right? So, I mean, these guys are worth billions and billions. What this technology is doing is changing that. So actually, you have this concept of a dApp or a decentralized application, which is built on top of the protocol. So previously, the thin protocol HTTP, say, where there was no value create or no value captured, and the application layer where there was a whole bunch of value uh, captured, has moved to a protocol like Bitcoin, where the protocol itself is where the value is, and the application layer itself is is uh, you know decentralized, and actually you start living in a world where there's an Uber without a company behind it, but it's actually open source software that people can access, and so. In the first case, if I was one of the early adopters of, uh, or onto Facebook, and I told everybody about it, and I actually helped the network grow and become more valuable for the Facebook shareholders, if I left it many years later when it had taken off, I don't leave it any, any better off materially. Whereas if I do that now with Bitcoin or with any of these other cryptocurrencies, the value is in the protocol itself. So if I, if I leave it and I had invested myself, uh, then I leave better off as well. So I think our systems are changing. The, 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 the very reason that we can, or, or the fact that we can raise money right now without issuing a debt or equity is calling into question our entire paradigm. Can I, I just want to explain on that, um, because that is actually a glimpse of the future, and I agree entirely. You know, a lot of these businesses that we think are so entrenched in our world, you know, like Uber and Google and Dropbox and Facebook and all that sort of thing, you know, uh, at the end of the day, if you think about what makes them work, it is the fact that they act as these glorified payment hubs, like Uber, for example. And if you can make a payment directly to your service provider in a peer-to-peer -peer way, you don't actually need to have an Uber to do that. You can just have an open source app. But there's other uh, 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 um, services out there that we use as well, like if you think about Dropbox or Google Drive or even Gmail and Facebook, you know, uh, what what peer-to-peer uh, uh, -peer currencies are going to open up for the future, this is the, how the future is going to look, is that all these, these types of massive uh, monolithic companies are going to disappear. And uh, uh, you're going to now start seeing people dry, uh, paying their service providers directly. But uh, people say, well, listen, Uber isn't just this payment hub. It does other things. It's this pretty little app and they vet their drive and all that sort of thing. But you can still have an Uber service where uh, you have multiple service providers out there providing these, these uh, uh, add-on uh, features like insurance, vetting, making sure the drivers are, are safe. Um, and uh, uh, you can now 
transact with those drivers directly again without having Uber. But there's other technologies that it enables. Um, for example, with Dropbox and Google Drive, you know, you can now uh, start linking all these uh, uh, unused resources around the world, all these laptops that have little bits of hard drive. You can actually mesh them all together and we can all store all our data on all these servers out there and pay microtransactions to everybody that we're borrowing um, uh, space from, like Airbnb. You know how Airbnb, you can rent out your excess capacity. So the glimpse of the future that I see with these peer-to-peer -peer currencies is that we're going to move away from these centralized service providers into this kind of world where we, we all... Airbnb resources that host email servers or host uh, even uh, computing resources like Amazon Web Services. So, it, uh, you know, it's not just going to be decentralized payments. I think, it, you know, the sharing economy, I think that's what it's called, you know, that is going to grow massively. I think that is certainly the future. Well, and to, to add to that, you, I mean, if you, if you want to see the future of banks, you just have to look at, at what happened in other industries, right? Um, what happened to newspapers when the internet impacted that industry? Um, and the companies that win now are, are more marketplaces than anything else. Uber is a marketplace. Airbnb is yeah. a marketplace. The banks of the future will be marketplaces. They will be connecting people to service providers in a network, like BTC Jam is doing for, for, for lenders and borrowers at the moment. Right. I don't know if, how, how many of you are familiar with BTC Jam, but basically you can go and you can take out a loan from the Bitcoin network. That loan will get aggregated um, from, from users that have signed up and have some Bitcoin available um, to, to the network. And then your repayment of the loan will get you a rating, a little bit like an Uber driver, and your interest rate will um, vary based on your rate of repayment. Um, so to a large degree, these things can be automated. There's an interesting discussion to be had about you know, what that corporation looks like, and maybe these are DAOs in themselves. Mm -hmm. But I think the point is that, is that the future of banks, just like the future of everything else, is as a marketplace. But to get there, there's a lot of pain. The newspapers still haven't realized that they're dead, right? Um, there, there, there are a lot of companies that, because of their inertia, because of their weight in the market, and you talk about age, like old Mutual's 170 years old and owns all of the property in South Africa, every last tree just about. But, um, <laughs> but it takes a long time for something that big to die, right? Like it gets poison or cancer, and then it's like, oh, shit, and then 50 years later... <laughs> Kodak didn't die over a long time. Kodak still isn't entirely dead. <laughs> we're, we're, in the future, we're still going to have banking, but the banks are not going to be anything like what we have today. And, so. and, I th and, and a lot less people will be working for them. I think that's the other oh, key absolutely. point. So listen, I, I work at a bank right now, and right now the financial services industry has accounted, in my view, for far too much of the economic growth of the past few decades than it ought to have. And um, I think as we go forward and we start seeing uh, things become cheaper, more commoditized, etc., we'll start to see margins start coming down. But what we will also see is volumes expanding. So, you know, being able to have micropayments, pay for an article that you read or whatever it may be, because the systems will become much more efficient. So... Banking is there because we have people with excess capital and people in need of capital, and that's always existed, and I don't think we're going to be solving that anytime soon. But the banks in their current form will certainly look very different, just as they look very different today than they did 20, 30 years ago. Um, I was going to talk about Bitcoin and the standard concept again. Is Bitcoin going to reach, or is it reaching a saturation point? Because it feels to me that you've got the Chinese miners who have kind of monopolized the mining side of the of the blockchain of Bitcoin, and they're the ones who are printing all the cash. So, so going back to your play, I don't know if you want to talk about it just yet. Well, I'll say for sure it's not reached its saturation. It hasn't even scratched the surface yeah. of where it's going to go. 
Okay. So how do you then... Okay, great. Let's park that. That's a cuck rabbit hole. Um, but let's talk about the... Let's, <laughs> I'm happy to be wrong or ask bad well, questions. Well, I, I, I think there's a discussion to be had yeah. about, about how... Bitcoin is in a bit of a quagmire at the moment, yeah. right? Can I get we really qu- are in trickle. Bitcoin for sure. is not scaling very well yeah. right now. And so, the, so the reason why I asked that question was because I'm, I know a lot of investors and the guys who are investing in cryptocurrencies are not investing in Bitcoin. They're investing in Ethereum for the simple reason that Bitcoin has a lifespan, right? There's, what's the date? 21 something? Well, it depends on the rates I mean, of mining, but when we get to 21 million coins. Okay. So, so you, it was 2140 the last time I checked, but I think it would be a lot sooner now. Exactly. So Ethereum, thinking, taking, talking to your point around a marketplace, Ethereum is more of an environment which runs dApps, unlike Bitcoin, which is almost just a currency. So going, you know, again, I don't know what you guys' thoughts are, like the longevity of Bitcoin versus Ethereum if at some point Bitcoin becomes inaccessible for whatever reason, and we don't know what the answers are, but if that does happen, what's the market going to do? They're going to look for something that doesn't have an expiry date. They're going to look for something like Ethereum that's quite frankly more adoptable, right? So when you say expiry, you're actually talking about a a finite supply, whereas Ethereum does not have a finite supply. That's it, yeah. Well, Ethereum currently has a finite monthly supply, right? Yeah, so let's just be clear. So so Bitcoin doesn't, there's no expiry date of Bitcoins themselves, right? Uh, What you're probably referring to is that there'll be a point in time, at, at, at that point, no new Bitcoins will be created, right? So that's the kind of expiry of minting new Bitcoins. Which is actually a good thing uh, for value because value works well when there's scarcity, right? And with with uh, Ethereum as it currently stands, there are about 18 million ethers that are plus or minus created every year, etc. So, so there. To your point earlier, it's about the utility. Like, what are these networks being used for? And Bitcoin is being great for repayment. Well, it has been great until relatively re- recently, but there are so many new platforms. So. As much as I love Lorian and I know he's a Bitcoin maximalist, etc., I think Bitcoin has a lot of issues right now, and and the solutions on the table right now to solve Bitcoin scaling debate are not long-term solutions. So at the current rate, we're going to be having these things every couple of years, and that's, uh, to be honest with you, that's not a very good um, model to have. So the beauty of it is that. It's not really a big deal from the perspective of a societal perspective because if Bitcoin doesn't come to the party, there'll be many other replacements for it. So if you're thinking from an investment perspective, you need to pay a lot of attention to to kind of what the benefits are, what the, what the scarcity is of these coins, what the utility is of these coins. Um, but Bitcoin certainly has some drawbacks. One of them is the skin debate. The other thing, quite frankly, again, if you're not looking at... Uh, um, uh, well, if, if you're looking at not, not just at as a payment mechanism, but if you're looking at a broader perspective, uh, it's a very expensive network and it relies on burning energy uh, at a greater rate uh, into the future to replace trust, right? So that's good and that's bad and, and you know, can be debated both ways. But, but I think if you, read, if you read the original Satoshi Nakamoto white paper, it's quite clear what the purpose of Bitcoin was, Correct. right? It was designed to be a store of value. It was designed to disrupt the global financial system. But when you, when you read what the white paper doesn't say, which is almost important as what it does say, you get a glimpse into 
the best quality of thought that's gone into any cryptocurrency to date. None of these other cryptocurrencies, as great as some of them are, I'm a big fan of Monero, I'm a fan of Dash, I'm an even bigger fan of Ethereum. The quality of thinking that has gone into them just isn't a patch on the quality of thinking that's gone into Bitcoin, right? Firstly, they rely on central figures, um, you know, like uh, like Vitalik Buterin, for example. And when somebody spreads a fake news story has happened about Vitalik dying in a car accident, the price of Ethereum crashes. There's a reason that Satoshi knew that he or she, we're pretty sure it's a guy because some people have spoken to him, <laughs> but... We're pretty sure that's a t- I mean, it could have changed, right? That's the world we live in. Um, <laughs> he might have decided that. Anyway, I digress. Satoshi knew that it was important to be pseudonymous, that there shouldn't be a central authority or a central figure perceived to be controlling Bitcoin or guiding it. The other thing you pick up from what the white paper doesn't say is that Bitcoin was designed to be a time bomb. It was designed to not make people rich overnight. It was designed to grow in adoption very slowly and at pace. Because by the time it's big enough for regulators to worry about, it needs to be too big enough for them to do anything about. If Bitcoin had come up and blown up overnight, it still would have been at a low concentration of mining and somebody could have stopped it. Satoshi thought about these things, right? The foresight, the wherewithal, the thinking that went into Bitcoin as a store of value, right? and as a form of money for the internet, is second to none. Now, Satoshi had things that he didn't think Bitcoin should be used for, would be good for, and smart contracts is debatably one of those things. Satoshi wasn't thinking about coming up with a new way to write contracts, right, and entrench human trust in a timestamp that is immutable. He was thinking more about the financial system and about money. Ethereum, on the other hand, has been perceived and, 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 and thought of, and it's an experiment, as something that underpins um, the trust system from a contractual perspective. So that now any two people in the world can go and form a contract, whether it's an antinuptial contract, a deed of sale, or anything else, without a central authority, and make that contract immutable, sign it into a blockchain, and that's something Ethereum was designed for. When you're imagining a blockchain for a specific use case like that, the dynamics and the economics of what powers the system need to be fundamentally different from what you're doing when you're designing economics for store of value, right? Ethereum was not designed for as a store of value. Um, and I think that's the interesting thing we're seeing with these cryptocurrencies, is can a cryptocurrency be all thing, things to all monkeys? And at the moment, the answer is no. Bitcoin is a fantastic store of value, again, debatable and and, and it talks about at what point in time we're talking. But let's say Bitcoin's a fantastic store of value. Can it be that and a, fanta- and a fantastic transactional mechanism? Maybe not. Maybe we need Bitcoin Cash. And by the way, that's what's happening on the 1st of August, right? Is we've got the split that's happening where we're going to have two different kinds of Bitcoin. What we now call BTCs you know, is, the, is the currency unit and, and we'll have BCC as well. We might need a system with different economics if we're going to get a transactional cryptocurrency that we can use every day in retail. And that will, ha- again, have to have different economics from this, the smart contract um, cryptocurrency. So I, I, I think I, I, I kind of have a hybrid of the opinions in, in the room. I hear what Lorian's saying about Bitcoin, but I think that there are these niches to be filled, and I don't think that Bitcoin can just fill all of them. Okay, I, I want to jump in. I mean, every every now and again, you said something, and I wanted to actually say something in rebuttal. But l- let me just then put my thoughts on the table, and it'll cover what you guys have been saying. So I think that Bitcoin's greatest strength is the fact that it has no de, de facto leader. 
And it has proven its resilience in the fact that we have these debates, that we have these issues with how do we, do we, how do we, how do we scale this thing? So what we have seen with Bitcoin is that it, 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 it follows through on its greatest promise of immutability and also sticking to its most uh, uh, most important property, which is that the e economics around Bitcoin are never changed. You know, if you're going to be investing in a currency, if that's what some of you are interested in now investing, then you're going to want to make sure that whatever the dream is that you're buying into stays that dream. So all these other currencies that exist, and of course there's smart people involved in them, but they all have this one problem where there is somebody, whether it's a, a you know it's an official position like with Vitalik, who's kind of the head of the foundation or whatever it is, or uh, just uh, maybe a group of people who are involved, that you are you are sort of susceptible to their thinking. Because we saw with Ethereum that when there was a big decision to be made in terms of the DAO problem and we had to split Ethereum, that ultimately the foundation said, listen, given the problem that we have and given the problems that will follow from this because now we you know, are committed to proof of stake which has a, a huge implication if somebody holds a lot of Ethereum, we are going to make that tough decision and we are going to now change the course of this ship. And now that meant that if there was an economic principle behind it that you had bought into, then you would have now been subject to that. So the fact that Bitcoin is so hard to change, is so difficult to make decisions about it, it means that it's going to stay on course. And you can trust that whatever you invest in here, it's not ever going to, uh, uh, the economics of it are never going to just change arbitrarily because the, the governance has decided that. So I think that Bitcoin's greatest strength is this an anonymity, there's no uh, person in charge, um, and don't forget that network effect. Network effect is a very powerful force. Uh, uh, when you have something that is so widespread, like TCPIP had this great network effect, and it is flawed, by the way. TCP is, you know, if you know anything about that, you know, with IPv4, you know, d there's apparently only so many IP addresses. So, you know, it's not about the technical brilliance of a solution, but about how widespread it is and how adopted. So I have a great amount of confidence in Bitcoin, even in spite of the fact we're struggling to, to scale because of its success. Um, I do believe that ultimately everybody wants a single Bitcoin. Yes, this Bitcoin cash is, is a bit of a problem, but at the end of the day, it's still Bitcoin and it's still staying true to its economics. And uh, uh, if segregated witness and all those other issues uh, don't follow through, that's fine because what we bought into was 21 million. That was what we want. And nobody can change that. So I'm actually far more confident about Bitcoin as a store of value as a long-term investment uh, than any of these other currencies. Um, so I just want to well, I don't yeah. think we're disagreeing, right? Because, because you agree that there's scope for something like Ethereum to exist in the smart contract space and that it's unlikely, as things currently stand, that Bitcoin is going to become the de facto smart contract platform. Yes, but Ethereum but, has pretty much already won that battle. Yes, but now you're talking about two different things. You're talking about a, a technology platform sure. that enables tech and you're talking about gold. You're talking about sound money. You're talking yeah. about an economic system. So, yes, I, I'm totally happy for, uh, uh, to, for Ethereum to exist, and, and, and hopefully one day they will come up with something that's useful apart from ICOs. Uh, that's cool. I'm, I'm, to I'm totally happy with that. But it's never going to be money. And it's, and, and, and Ooh, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, have you, have you done an Ethereum transaction versus a Bitcoin transaction lately? Yes, but that's... Ethereum's faster, easier, Oh, uh, but it doesn't cheaper. scale. Remember, the, uh, uh, Ethereum can't scale too. Sure, it has its own problems. It's got its own problems. <laughs> I think uh, what I do know is that we all three of us don't know. Yeah, <laughs> we, yeah. we, 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 we have no idea. So. Amen. <laughs> so you just all wasted 60 minutes of your life, but you'll never get back. I know. Sorry, guys. You guys don't know. There's be upstairs. <laughs>
But I mean, that's, it, it, that, that's, that's not a glib point, right? This is a big experiment. There is nobody who knows. Um, Satoshi right. doesn't know wherever he or she is. Uh, certainly not in the American military if he's decided he's a Sheena. Uh, but I digress again. <laughs> it's a um, he, it's, and he's Australian. <laughs> well, my, no, no, no. Chris Wright, uh, what's his name? Craig, Craig White. He, right, right. right, whatever. Right. That douchebag is not Satoshi Nakamoto. <laughs> Doesn't like, have the Genesis keys. Things. Hired a PR company to help prove. No. <laughs> he's Australian. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you got me there. Okay. <laughs> Cool. So I just want to kind of wrap up now and give the um, our guests an opportunity to um, to ask their questions. So I've gone through the list of questions I've received on Twitter. There's been quite a lot, so thanks for that. Um, and I, with with these sorts of things, which are very intangible, I always like to try and bring it down into reality as much as possible. So this tweet I got from Kamshil Ramsakit. Where, where are you, dude? Are you up there? Okay, cool. Do you mind if I read your question? Okay, cool. So you said, yeah, given its low cost of use, how can we use Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies to drive financial inclusion in South Africa? And listening to everything that you guys have said, which has been insanely awesome, but again, for me, it's what we were talking about, um, Lorraine, the other day around how do you get the man in the street to get Bitcoin, keep it, and then spend it. So from a financial co- inclusion perspective, which I think is the fundamental, fundamentally the biggest opportunity outside of the corporate space and the legacy institutions, and regardless of what the platforms are, the man in the street is the one that will leapfrog technology adoption. In other words, if he's never had a bank account, he's just going to go straight to Bitcoin as soon as he has a smartphone. And by the way, we've got 30 million of these things in South Africa right now. And at some point, everyone will question or just do things easier because it's fundamentally available on your phone. And Mm. access is no longer a problem. Neither is data costs and whatever. And so from a financial inclusion perspective, Mm. to answer his question, what do we need to do as a cryptocurrency community? Okay, so this is precisely what I'm involved with. I want to get Bitcoin into the hands of every single person on the planet but I'll start with South Africa. So uh, we, we are trying to do that. We're trying to figure out how, is it, how do we get people to buy Bitcoin. So uh, CentPi is my uh, uh, new initiative. In fact, my partner, Angus Brown, is at the back over there. He uh, was a CEO and founder of uh, eBucks, and he's, he's seen the light. He's no, he can see that uh, Bitcoin is definitely going to be the next wave. So the problem is now, fine, we love Bitcoin, but now how do we get pe- it into the hands of the people? So CentPi uh, is this new uh, business, and it's going to be live soon. Uh, download the wallet. And uh, uh, what do we have our, our voucher? that you can buy like a gift card at, uh, at the cash, a checkout at Checkers or wherever, uh, you, you can buy Bitcoin in that way. And we also have a wallet where you can now go and immediately scan that, that card and you can put Bitcoin onto your, onto your wallet. Um, so we're tackling that. And that is the sort of thing that now needs to happen. We've got a very cool protocol but we don't have any cool apps. And uh, uh, you'll often, as, as, when, you, when you speak to enlightened people who are in this space, they say it's all about the user experience and it's all about the apps. Bitcoin sucks right now as a user experience. If you want to buy Bitcoin, you've got to go onto an online exchange. What a horrible experience. So we have to figure out and build the Facebooks of Bitcoin so our mothers and grandmothers can all get into, into Bitcoin. But I mean, there's there, to me, the are bigger issues that, I'm just they make the technology stack insignificant quite frankly um and and when you talk about financial inclusion you open a massive can of worms because we also have to talk about you know the unemployment numbers in South Africa that are massive and rising 
you know, we have no economic growth. There are no new jobs being created, not in, not in a, a substantial enough way. When, when you look at the world economy right now uh, and you look at job creation and, and you look at where things are quite clearly headed, um, we, we've, got a, we've got a problem, right? And, and words like salary uh, are things that might seem completely anachronistic 50 years from now. Um, a salary is not something everybody alive today can have. So what do we do? Um, and the best proposals on the table at the moment are around universal basic income. And there are already experiments underway in Scandinavian countries where, you know, they've got more oil than old mutual has trees in South Africa. So they, they can afford to play these games. But, but these experiments are working, right? Socialism at that level is, is working. And I don't want to get into the politics of it, but, but, but universal basic income shows a lot of promise. Now, what would be the best way to do UBI? It would probably be a black, blockchain backed technology. Um, there's, in fact, there's, there's a, an amazing initiative in South Africa at the moment called Project Ubu. Um, check it out. Um, Disclaimer, I'm, I'm an advisor to them. But, but Ubu is looking at this problem and going, if we did design universal basic income for Africa, what would it have to look like? How would it work? Uh, we know we can't have the government involved, right? Those corrupt motherfuckers are not going to help us. So we need something else. That economic control needs to be wrestled away. And again, they're good people in government. Maybe they have a role to play. I, I tend towards extremes. But, 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 but it seems like we would be better served by a system that wasn't controlled, at least not by the government we have right now. So who's going to do this? Who will pick up this, 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 this kind of torch and, and carry this flame? And there's some, some of the smartest people I know are thinking about this right now. And it's a, it's the mother of all hard problems. Um, but those are the things that we need to think about. Those are the things that we need to solve before we use whatever our money is then, whether it's Bitcoin or something else. Is, is what does a universal basic income look like? How do we get vendors on board? How do we make it possible for you to go and get your maize meal and, and other things that you need, your provisions? for a token that's just given to you for being a citizen. Um, and, and we have decades of very hard work to do in solving those problems. Yeah, I, I think I agree. That the, the, the issues with financial inclusion are much, much broader than just introduction of a cryptocurrency or, or this new technology on the blog called blockchain. Um, you know, mobile phones, the internet, uh, blockchain, these all have elements of helping us solve these issues. But there's a real short-sighted kind of view sometimes to say this particular technology or this particular thing is going to change everything. It's just simply not, right? The internet was meant to change everything. Well, there are lots it of did, stories. It did. Not for many people, not for the majority of the world. Remember that not less than the half of the, of the world's world. population is online, right? right? Yeah. So I think we have this tendency, again, just to look at my own life. Yeah, of course, my life for sure. But if you look at the world, the world has serious problems right now, right? So we have the tools, but we're going to need to use these tools and collaborate together as a society to solve problems like financial inclusion or financial disinclusion, if that's a word. But this technology certainly has a role to play. And what I will say is, is the other interesting thing to think about is we think of, of Bitcoin and its cryptocurrency as something that's beholden to the internet. And to a degree, the infrastructure is, but it also works offline. You can have Bitcoin right. in the form of paper. Um, you can have brain wallets, in fact. It can just be a series of words that you remember. You don't have to have internet access to participate in this economy. 
And so while I do think there's a bigger issue and, you know, there's, there's all of these political and, and, and socioeconomic discussions to be had, I, I will say that I think that the technology is glorious in some ways. Absolutely. And, and also you don't need permission to participate, and that's an important element of it too. Right now, the banking system and its dynamics, and again, this is nobody's fault necessarily, but the banking system just can't accommodate everybody right now, right? There is no way for it to make profits off of somebody who's earning um, basic way, you know, minimum, minimum wages. It just doesn't work. The system doesn't work for them. Um, but, but the blockchain potentially could because it doesn't discriminate on the, st- the size of your store of value. Fees might still be high. I think that's a problem we'll overcome. But there's no discrimination on the blockchain um, on, for example, sizes of transactions or balances. The economics of the system do work for everyone. Sorry. Can I, yeah. So I just really want to give you guys an opportunity to, to get involved in the conversation. So I've already got one hand going up. Um, so just speak up and then I'll repeat your question. Okay. Okay, so the question is, um, can you better explain smart contracts and how they'll be used in the future? Cool. Uh, Go for it. So, so an analogy I love using is if you took a 100 Rand note right now, right? You took or $10 notes if there's anybody from the USA listening. <laughs> and, and you wrote um, I, an IOU on that, that note, you would have taken money and you would have turned it into a contract. Now, if you dropped it in the street, anybody who picked it up would still only be able to spend the 100 Rand or $10. Um, right, but to the person who the contract was written for, this isn't just a ten rand or a hundred rand note anymore. This is now a contract with with value. Philosophically, that's how smart contracts work on the blockchain. They were first imagined as what we called colored coins in Bitcoin. I'll take a little bit of Bitcoin, a tiny Bitcoin transaction, and I will encode other data into that transaction. And that data could be anything. One of the most exo- uh, uh, interesting examples we saw recently um, was a hacker writing the details of Tiananmen Square into the Bitcoin blockchain as metadata so that if the Chinese government was um, taking over substantial mining operations of Bitcoin, they would have to incorporate information about Tiananmen Square into a public data system, right? But you can literally take anything. Um, It can be a piece of text. Uh, There's a band called 22 Hertz that, that made news in Canada when they became the first musicians in the world to write sheet music into the blockchain so that they could go back to that Bitcoin transaction and prove that they, you know, wrote that music in at a certain date and so probably were the people who originated that music. So you could take an anti-nuptial contract, you could take any contract, any piece of information, any creative work that you can express as digital information and you can encode it into the blockchain. The way that happens on Ethereum is a little bit different. Ethereum was imagined as a blockchain for this purpose. Um, but when you think about it, what isn't a contract, right? <laughs> um, and whenever we're talking about human trust, we're talking about a contract, whether it's uh, money, which is a contract between the bearer and the reserve bank, <laughs> or whether it's uh, a contract between two people who are getting married. Um, any, any of these can be written into the blockchain. Maybe something to add on to that. So I think Simon's really talking about how do you take a contract and then make it immutable onto the blockchain so nobody has control over changing that contract. You know, and there are technical things Still like... Still getting to the smart bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so the smart stuff, when you talk about a smart contract, you know, a contract is just some type of an obligation between people or institutions. So the smart thing is just saying when conditions are met that there will be an automatic execution without relying upon a third party. Okay, So just as a simple example, let's just say you had insurance 
and you had a farm, and you were worried that if the temperature went above 40 degrees Celsius, that you would need a payout of $100, let's just say. That's what the contract was. Now, traditionally, you have to go see, let's say the, 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 the temperature goes up above 40 uh, Celsius, 40 degrees, you need to go and go and make a claim to the insurer, and then hopefully they, they'll, they'll process it. Maybe they'll give it to you, maybe they won't pay out, you don't know. With a smart contract, you can put the same terms into that contract. You need to have what's called an oracle, which is to determine what exactly is the temperature. So that's an, a source of truth that you both mutually agree on. But what happens is when you have value that's on a blockchain, you can actually lock up, for example, that value in a smart contract. And as soon as that smart contract receives an input that says, by the way, the temperature has gone about 40 degrees, that smart contract will automatically execute and send those funds to its intended destination without relying on any trusted third party. So that's a very, very beautiful and powerful thing that humanity has never had access to. It does, it does introduce a very big change in the way we think about contracts, though, in that you have to make damn sure that the contract is Absolutely. exactly right when you write it into the blockchain because once it's up and running, it can't be changed. Um, and so that's what happened with the DAO, right? The, there was a mistake in the contract that somebody managed to exploit. See, right now, if we dispute a contract that happens in a court of law and we deliberate about language, is this really what the Correct. law meant? Is this really what I meant? We can also forge documents. I can make a contract up today and date it for this time last year and forge signatures, etc. You can't do that on the blockchain. So it, it brings new efficiencies to contracts. It means that if you know somebody who's studying an LLB at the moment, they should probably do a little BAC on the side because their job's going to go away. Um, <laughs> but, but, but it does introduce this very important caveat that when contracts are written, they need to be airtight and absolutely correct up front because a computer is going to pass that code and as far as I'm said, will automatically distribute wealth based on the conditions of the contract. Okay, next question. This lady was first. So hang on. So the question for the listeners <laughs> is uh, who or what is the Oracle? So the Oracle can be any service that both parties agree to. So we'll start seeing this more and more in the blockchain world. Already certain companies are trying to provide this service, uh, which is to say, hey, we're a trusted third party. For instance, Reuters. They're saying, we're, we're a trusted third party. Most of the world relies on us for data on exchange rates, et cetera, et cetera. We will provide a service to provide particular information, and we'll emit that information to a blockchain you know, every second or every minute or whatever it may be. Use our service if you want to. If you don't want to, don't. I could be an oracle for someone. You know, if two people trust me, then they say, well, the oracle for this particular information is Firezone, right? So it's really the oracle is determined by the participants in a contract. And that's where governments potentially come in in the future as well. If we had an antinuptial contract, I'm not proposing, but um, if we had an antinuptial contract, it would specify states like um, engaged, married, and achshem, divorced, and it would specify what happens when those states are reached the oracle there could be the Department of Home Affairs. Correct. That would then say, yes, this couple is divorced, execute the Absolutely. contract. Yeah. Okay, next question. <laughs> uh, guy at the back there on the left. So the, the mining effects on the environment, is that kind of it? So, so what's, the mine, what's the economic effect of mining? Just say more about that. When you say yeah. economic effect, what do you, what do you mean? Well, the 
Okay, got it. Okay. Yeah. So you were saying, yeah. So the GPU prices have skyrocketed lately. Uh, your comments, guys? I, I mean, I'm sure Lorian will have a lot to say about this as well. It's something <laughs> we've discussed a lot: is 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 um, whether or not proof of work is is a good idea versus is. something like proof of stake, <laughs> which is what Ethereum's about it's to not. move to. Um, but but these become philosophical discussions. Was the, the introduction of, of ASIC miners good for Bitcoin or bad? Right now, uh, basically, when Bitcoin was invented, the algorithm was not as hard as it is today, not nearly, and you could mine Bitcoin on your laptop, for example. Um, things then got harder as the algorithm grew, and you needed to use uh, a more specialized chip. So GPUs became the de facto chips, what used to be used for graphic processing. Um, because they're so efficient, uh, would do a better job of mining Bitcoin than your computer CPU. And then we had the introduction of application-specific integrated circuits. These are computers that are made for the singular purpose of running a particular piece of software. In the case of Bitcoin, all this computer can do is run the Bitcoin protocol and, and chunk the algorithm, right? Um, and that's all it does. But it introduces a new efficiency into, into the industry, and it means that there's an arms race underway for who can build the best ASIC and who can mo do the most efficient mining. Now, that's when we get to the philosophy, <laughs> right? It's not philosophy, though. It's, it's a, very, a very clever technical thing. It's, there's nothing philosophical about well, it. Well, no, there, there is something deeply philosophical about it because now Bitcoin mining is exclusionary. You have to be it's, it's part now, of a pool. You have to have enough resources to buy these miners. You have to have the relationships no. yes. uh, in place. So it's created a, a, an economic environment where uh, mining becomes a, a, a function of the system. But can I, can, can I tell you why I think proof of work is, is, is better? Sure. So proof of work, <laughs> by the way, if you are not sure about it, if you've ever heard about mining uh, and you hear about these massive computers that have to chew up electricity and all they're doing really at the end of the day is finding some magic number. It's not like they're crunching data you know, to be able to process transactions. So the reason why I think proof of work is better than proof of stake and I'll, uh, okay, let me contrast what proof of stake is. Um, so proof of work is you need all these big computers and they're all chewing electricity and, uh, uh, and basically on this, in this sort of lottery way they uh, get a magic number and if whoever gets the magic number can then go and add a block to the blockchain. Only one, only one computer can can add a block to the blockchain at any over any interval. Okay, so that's the one. That's how Bitcoin is secured. All right, so churning electricity essentially. Proof of stake, which is Ethereum's proposed. Uh, I don't know when they're going to launch that, but. Um, so, so basically, proof of stake is like if you have a, a if you're in a company. Let's say you own shares in a company, and there's a group of you. Uh, basically, whoever has the greatest share in the company can have the greatest share of the decision making, essentially, or the greatest vote. So, what happens then is that if you have a, 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 in your board of directors or something, and one person has 20% of the vote, another person has 70% of the vote. Well, you know, uh, because of that weighting, the person who has the greatest stake in that business is going to have the greatest power, essentially. And that's now uh, what Ethereum is trying to do, where whoever has the, essentially the most number of tokens or the most Ether, they have the greatest stake in the system. And the theory goes that because they have the greatest stake, they can, they can be trusted more to make the decisions because obviously they're not going to make decisions which negatively impact the price of their tokens. Okay, so we've got these two different uh, uh, versions. Now, the reason why I think proof of work is better, although as a hippie and a tree hugger myself, uh, I, I wished it weren't so. I'd love it if, if we had free lunches and we didn't have to spend and burn energy and, and deplete the Earth's resources. I still think that it performs a very important 
important function, a very necessary function, and this is why. Because if you want to secure the Bitcoin blockchain, you have to now bring in an external source of energy or external resource to be able to secure the network, a resource that you cannot hack, you cannot you know, uh, uh, have an unfair advantage of. Sure, if you can co-opt a nuclear power station, yes, you're going to have an advantage. But at the end of the day, you're going to be paying real money to a utility to now consume energy that you can then go and uh, use to uh, enforce security on the blockchain. So it's an external factor that secures the Bitcoin blockchain. Now, proof of stake, it's, there's no external thing that you need to be able to co- uh, 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 pull from to be able to secure the network. The whole thing is wrapped up in a kind of like a little package. The whole, everything about it, the, the security is all wrapped up in the technology itself. Now, if you find a little thread in that little package and you start pulling and pulling, you can unravel it. And what do I mean by that? The DAO was a perfect example. The DAO was a smart contract that had a flaw. And everything, all the logic around that smart contract was wrapped up in the contract. So if you found a flaw in the contract, you could go and destroy the whole thing. And that's what happened with the DAO. There's no way in Bitcoin you can go and find a flaw in the technical code or the the technology that runs it to be able to find that flaw which then undermines the security. The only way you're going to be able to undermine the security is by uh, having an advantage of this external resource that is very hard to manipulate. I mean, try and and see if you can have this unfair advantage in terms of how much energy you consume. So that's why, even though it's it's unfortunate that Bitcoin burns so much energy to, to secure this network, it's something that cannot be manipulated. You have to spend real money to have an advantage. And that's why I think proof of work, unfortunately, is the only solution to securing a blockchain and, and so, stake is not. So uh, our understanding of how proof of stake works, I think, is, is different. But I, we're getting way too technical. I think yes. yeah, the question uh, was, was about, was about <laughs> the economics of, of the system and of mining. Can I, can I answer that? Uh, but that impacts the economics Just, because now miners do need to be able to raise funds to be able to buy hardware to be able to then process it. So there's, of course, an economic thing about it where this is not just something anybody can do. If you can raise the money, then great, go for it. But you're going to spend money to make money. Very quick answer. So every day, uh, today's rates, about $4.5 million worth of Bitcoin is issued into into existence every day. And for Bitcoin, you need ASICs, as was mentioned. For other uh, cryptocurrencies, you need CPUs. So when there's such a big prize, people will spend money on things like GPUs, etc., to get it. So economically, the prices will go up. Yeah, which is why NVIDIA and AMD shares were very good over the last two years. Cool. Yeah, cool. Um, do you, how do you guys do? You guys want to take one more question? Audience, hands up. Yes. No, many not. Okay. Sorry, guys. One more. One more. Okay. This lady's going to burst if she doesn't get it right. Okay, go for it. Okay, so the first question is, how secure is Bitcoin and uh, the volatility of Bitcoin? How is that going to affect other currencies? So very briefly, I think my advice always with these things is, first of all, don't, don't buy what you can't afford to lose right now. It's a very risky asset, all of these things. So don't put your life savings in it and, and also make sure it's for the long term. Don't try to, if you're saving for something like in two months time, this is not a good thing, right? You, you don't know where it's going to be. So I think what's important to your specific, uh, to answer your specifically your question about a potential fork on August 1st, if you have a Bitcoin now, you will have a Bitcoin on both of those chains. So my personal view is if you want to buy something, buy it now. Don't wait. 
Um, I think it's a momentary thing, and that prices may dip, they may go up. Overall, if you if you think about what this technology is and what Bitcoin promises, it's much larger than what's happening on August first. Okay, guys, thank you so much. Any final brief comments or remarks you'd like to make? No. Thank Simon. you, Simon. That's very unlike you. No, I, I think we've we've done more than our fair share of talkings. Yeah, cool. <laughs> so, um, so the other thing I just wanted to let all you guys know is that today, um, my company, Digital Kung Fu, with my lead developer there, we launched a, a community, an online community for the cryptocurrency fans or people who are interested. It's a, it's basically community.digitalkungfu.co.za. The majority of you, 95% of you, already have your email ad- address. So what I'll do is I'll ping you all the link tomorrow. But I think it's it's the place for you guys to go and share your views, get your questions answered. But really, this needs to be a community-driven discussion more than anything. So one, I want to thank our audience for your time. It's been an absolute privilege and an honor having you here. And of course, to Simon, Lorien, and uh, Fazem, always a pleasure, never a chore. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. So there you have it, guys. Just a quick note to say thank you for supporting the first live podcast-driven event of its kind in South Africa. The turnout was overwhelming, and the feedback from attendees has been amazingly positive. Just a few things. My Twitter feed on that night was literally flooded with questions from the audience, and unfortunately, we could not get to answer all of them. So with that in mind, Digital Kung Fu has just launched an online platform for the cryptocurrency and blockchain community of South Africa. Now the online community can be accessed here. It's community.digitalkungfu.co.za That's community.digitalkungfu.co.za And it's the place where all your questions can be answered as developments within the cryptocurrency space develop locally and abroad. Now, if you are trading, working with the blockchain in your business or corporate, or whether you are simply interested in the subject, this community is for you. So go there now and register. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the Matt Brown Show. It's been an absolute privilege having you with us. And remember, if you'd like more information on Digital Kung Fu or our guests and the full show notes, all you have to do is head on over to digitalkungfu.co.za and you can catch us all over the social media graph. So till next time. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.